Hello, my name is Claire Heffron and welcome to the Geneva Centre for Security Policy podcast on the latest issues advancing peace, security and international cooperation. As horrific scenes of Australia's bushfires and recent intense flooding that has struck Indonesia, a growing number of experts have shown the general nature of climate-related risks and tracked their impact on politics, peace and conflict. In this episode, we discussed climate action with an influential leader on climate change and founder of a climate change initiative. And as disarmament is integral to the safeguarding and promotion of security, development and human rights, hundreds of millions of dollars are spent every year on disarmament operations. We discussed this issue with an author of the new book, A Guide to International Disarmament Law. First, we speak with Alexander Verbeek. He's a Dutch environmentalist, diplomat and former strategic policy advisor. He created the Planetary Security Initiative, where representatives from 75 countries meet annually on the climate change security relationship. Firstly, what are the benefits of climate action and where did you start? We worked on the solutions uh, section and I focused first of all on, it was basically split in two, like how did we get into the troubles we're in now, considering climate change and everything else. And then the main thing was, of course, how can we get out of this problem? So I started explaining in the past 200 years the tremendous progress we've made in, in all kinds of things. In, we have more democracy, there's more healthcare, there's more, we, we live twice as long as we used to live in, in the early 1800s. Child mortality has dramatically gone down just in my lifetime from 18% to just 4%, which is still high of course, but it's such a progress. In 1972, the Club of Rome came with all these scientists with their warning saying, well, there's limits to the growth, you know, if everything is growing, if we have more people, more economy, we need more resources, we produce more waste, but the planet is not growing, that stays the same size, somewhere that's not going to fit. And they said somewhere between now and 72 and the next hundred years, we're bound to get into trouble. Of course, then, since then, we've seen more and more that that happened. We've tried more and more to do things about it. And that brought us to the debate about solutions and, and, and also the kind of impact that we already experience and that we are bound to experience with more climate change and, and the other environmental challenges that we're looking at. What is the science of climate change and are there any doubts? Of climate change, the basic science is quite simple. It is just 19th century knowledge. Already in 19th century, scientists said that if you burn a lot of uh, fossil fuels and you produce a lot of CO2, it will form a kind of blanket around the earth that, that keeps us warmer. Of course, scientists, if you put two scientists in a room, you normally have three opinions. So you can, you can talk about all kinds of details. But there's no serious climate scientist in the world that denies that climate change is very serious, it is man-made, it is mainly caused by CO2, but there's a lot of other reasons, and the CO2 is mainly produced by burning fossil fuels, but there's a lot of other reasons as well. Until, I guess, the early 1980s, this was never discussed as something that is either true or not true. And then, the, especially the fossil fuel industry, started a campaign of misinformation in creating the idea as if the scientists did not yet agree. And there's, um, that has, they've been effective in stalling the debate about taking action and solutions 
so they could keep selling fossil fuels because politicians started to believe that the science was not settled. Maybe it was not true. There's leaders of important countries that call this a Chinese hoax. This, this misunderstanding has been so damaging in taking the right action. It's a bit comparable to the tobacco industry. When I grew up, you had pictures of doctors in, you know, white coat uh, with a cigarette and saying, you know, this, this purifies my lungs. It's good for you. And for a long time that stalled taking effective action on making regulations, uh, selling less uh, cigarettes and taking action against, you know, the, the enormous amount of lung cancer that has been caused. What are the challenges? I think for each individual, it is difficult to grasp how big and how serious this problem actually is. You feel as an individual, you know, what, what, can, I, what can I do? I will fly less or take other measures. I'm just one out of these seven billion on this planet. Does that really matter? And if everybody says so, we get nowhere. And that is the same, we call this the tragedy of the commons. You know, it's always your neighbor or somebody else that's responsible for the problem. And states have for a long time been doing the same as well. Some said, well, it's the other state that produced more of the, the greenhouse gases in the past. Or at this moment, somebody else is doing a lot. And I think the brilliance of the, the Paris Agreement in, in 2015 is that finally diplomats found a formula that countries, practically all countries in the world, agree to, uh, to the Paris Agreement and agree that we are going to take action. Basically, we're going to do as much as we can. Is that enough? Well, no. Is it a brilliant agreement? Yes. I think diplomatically speaking, it is, it, I was amazed how good the result was. But it's not yet enough, but it's a very good start. I think Churchill might call this the begin of the beginning, but you have to begin somewhere. So it's at the individual level, it's at the state level, it's at all levels that you can take action, that you have to realize that, that you have to start yourself. I think companies are very interesting to look at. Very, there's many companies that now realize that if you become more sustainable, that is not only good for the planet, it's also good for your business model. Your, among the first movers and actually often you can you can earn back your investment let's say if you use let's say i want to produce uh, less package i want to use less packaging for the product that i make that sounds like ah oh, that's expensive because we can need some kind of new design but actually at the end of the day you need less material you have to transport less material it is uh, less work to package the whole thing because you have less packaging and then it's cheaper to transport it and at the end you have less waste so it could easily be and there's many examples that in such a case it's actually good for your business model do you think the climate change narrative is shifting there's still a long way to go, but yes, I do see that the narrative is changing. This cruel summer with these massive heat waves all over the Northern Hemisphere has as one positive effect that people that never really spoke about climate change before now suddenly realize like, wow, this was really extreme. We, I saw it here and then I went somewhere on holiday and there we had the same problem. And then after the holidays, my friends came back and wherever they went, it was also so hot. And now when I'm sitting in, in, in the metro in Stockholm, where I live, I hear people sitting next to me talking about climate change. It has made the realization that something is really fundamentally changing on this planet and that we therefore have to take action. I think that is much broader recognized now. Disarmament is integral to the safeguarding and promotion of security, development and human rights. Over the past 50 years, many multilateral disarmament treaties have been concluded 
and form an integral part of international law today. Dominica de Beaufort at the GCSP spoke to Tobias Fessner and Dr. Stuart Casey Maslin, GCSP Associate Fellow and Honorary Professor at the University of Pretoria. Tobias Fessner is the co-author of our newest publication, A Guide on International Disarmament Law, which seeks to fill a gap in the existing literature. So Stuart, what prompted you to write a book on international disarmament law? I think it was clear to us that there was a real gap in the, in the market. Over the last two decades, we've only had two books that have come out on disarmament law. One was quite a personal account by a very experienced uh, Danish diplomat, and the other, um, which dates all the way back to 2001, was broader on uh, all forms of uh, arms control, but hasn't been updated since. So for us, there was a real gap in the market, and as so much disarmament negotiations and some treaties have been adopted since the early 2000s, we thought there was a real need to take a, a, a state of the, uh, of the, the, um, the legal uh, branch of disarmament law and see where we are. Okay, but how then does your guide bring a new perspective to existing disarmament publications? Well, I think on, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's holistic, so it really looks at the, the five global disarmament treaties, but also on related instruments and treaties. So I think that's really an added value. On the other hand, breaking uh, the different themes of disarmament treaties or disarmament law, actually, into different chapters, I think is really uh, a novel approach, and with that, uh, really, really gives some, some new uh, clarification, uh, etc. But that also, having said that, allows uh, for, for certain really in-depth legal analysis. So I think there's a lot of uh, really legal uh, uh, content really broken down into the details that is really, uh, I think, quite an achievement. Okay, but then disarmament is often used as this very generic term to say arms control, disarmament and non-proliferation. Do you cover all these aspects in your book? Yes, but our focus is on disarmament. And by disarmament, we mean uh, treaties and law that focuses on the destruction of weapons. Now, you're right, uh, arms control, disarmament, they're sometimes used as synonyms. Some people say disarmament is part of arms control. Some people say the, uh, the opposite. But for us, the focus was on treaties and law where uh, stockpile destruction is at the heart. And then around that, there are a series of other uh, obligations, prohibitions on development, on manufacturing, on transfer, and of course, on use. But a heart of a disarmament treaty should be the destruction of the weapons. Non-proliferation is a uh, considerably narrower term, and that's about preventing, in particular, weapons of mass destruction falling into the hands of either certain states and, uh, in particular, non-state actors. Okay, and are there any new insights or something you discovered during uh, your research? I think for us, the main trend that we've uh, seen over the last uh, 20, 25 years is a move away from IHL law of armed conflict prohibitions purely on use of a weapon during armed conflict to embracing a more disarmament approach. When the anti-personnel mine uh, ban con convention was drafted in 1997, there were two options. They could have gone for an IHL instrument or they could have gone for this broader disarmament instrument. And there was an, a, a determination on the part of the diplomats and the uh, NGOs uh, that were supporting the, the prohibition of these weapons, that we needed to go broad. We needed to ban these weapons, not just in the situation of armed conflict, but also in peacetime. And I think that trend has since developed. So we've seen the Convention on uh, Cluster Munitions, for example, and more recently the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. All of them have followed this broader disarmament approach. Okay, then Tobias, how do you see the future for international disarmament law? 
Well, uh, speculating about the future is always hard. So, so, so you have, I think it's really hard to, to, to say anything concrete. Uh, but I, what I find interesting over the last um, a couple of years or decades even is there, there has been blockages and deadlocks into multilateral uh, fora. Nonetheless, I think the international community has managed to advance and adopt new treaties, new instruments, etc. So I think on the one hand you see there, there's a rising uh, arms race, especially between the great powers, great power competition that is coming back, etc. So that in terms of disarmament might not look really uh, positive. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there are really new ways, uh, be a soft law, uh, being, being uh, uh, I don't know, uh, arrangements between the great powers uh, or, or smaller bilateral arrangements that bring disarmament further. So uh, there are a lot of new technologies out there uh, that, that should be or could be uh, uh, regulated. There's enough uh, uh, reason to do something, uh, but how exactly that will uh, uh, turn out that that's kind of hard to, to say at this stage. So Tobias, you mentioned new technologies. Are there any specific challenges regarding that on the horizon? In our final chapter, we've outlined a series of challenges, but I think there are three weapons or, or technologies that are a particular concern. The first is cyber warfare. Now, this is not new, but its use in conflict and outside conflict is growing. And I think that's, a, that's going to be a major challenge. The second one is artificial intelligence, autonomous weapons. This is a, going to be a very difficult uh, obstacle to disarmament uh, uh, agreements. How do you outlaw, destroy artificial intelligence? It's not immediately obvious how that can happen. And then the third one is uh, potentially quite a, a, a small uh, item, but nonetheless a huge challenge, which is 3D printing. You can make weapons in your own back garden and you can make weapons that can kill. Uh, how you deal with that in a disarmament agreement is very difficult. I guess the, the, the fourth issue, which is not a, a new type of weapon, but is the uh, arena in which conflicts are going to be fought in the future, and that's outer space. It is clear that the next conflict could well be uh, fought in outer space and not here on Earth. And we're only beginning to find what the ramifications of that are for disarmament. So who is the book intended for? What's the audience? Well, um, it's a guide, so the question is what the guide, for whom is it for? Um, we, we really thought this could be for, for people working, practitioners working in the disarmament field on implementation of treaties, of instruments, being in international organizations, NGOs, uh, but also uh, diplomats who, who, who work with these instruments and in the diplomatic field, also eventually uh, negotiating new uh, agreements. So, so really a guide that, that is helpful for, for every day's work, but also of course uh, for scholars or young researchers to find quickly and accessible uh, uh, relevant information. And to make it as accessible as possible, we decided to adopt a thematic approach. It would have been possible to go through the five treaties, list the provisions, explain them, but actually we decided it would be more helpful to break it down by subject. So we have a chapter on use, chapter on stockpiling, chapter on transfer, on reporting, on verification, uh, enforcement. And we think that uh, the users, whether they be state or, or non-state, will find the answers and will find the guidance that they need much more easily in that thematic approach. Well, that's all for today's podcast for the GCSP. Thanks for listening and thank you to Alexander Verbeek for joining us along with Dr. Stuart Casey Maslin and Tobias Fessner. Join us again next week to hear all the latest insights on international peace and security. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Until then, bye for now. <laughs>